Hey, everybody. You're listening to the Airwave Podcast, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. Welcome to arguably our most exciting episode of Series 3, which will focus on anesthesia for laparoscopic surgery. My name is Peru, and joining me today is Gwen Lofsted. Thanks, Peru. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm a final year medical student at McMaster, and I've been an editor for previous episodes of the podcast, but this is my first time behind the microphone. If you're new to the podcast or looking for a quick refresher before we jump in, we recommend checking out our episode on maintenance from season two, as well as episode three from this season on neuromuscular blockers, as these concepts are particularly relevant to today's topic. We're going to be walking through the anesthetic for a laparoscopic case, which is something that comes up frequently in the OR. If you remember from our last series of episodes, we followed a young, healthy 38-year-old female undergoing a laparoscopic tubal ligation. Thanks, Gwen. I'm super excited you're part of this episode today. It's been a pleasure having you on our team, and I'm glad we can introduce you to our audience today. And just for our listeners, Gwen actually matched uh, and will be a resident at McMaster University in anesthesia coming up this year. So we're incredibly excited to to see where you go. Um, So if you've done a rotation in the OR, chances are that you've seen at least one laparoscopic assisted surgery. This is a minimally invasive technique in which a camera and other surgical instruments are inserted into the patient's abdomen through small ports. Laparoscopic surgery has obvious advantages, such as smaller incisions, decreased blood loss, decreased postoperative pain, and quicker recovery. And as surgeons have become more comfortable with the technique over time, laparoscopic surgery has become very common. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode with a primer on physiology. In order to create space inside the abdomen for visualization and movement of the instruments, the patient's peritoneum is filled with carbon dioxide under enough pressure to cause distension. This is called insufflation of the abdomen, and we refer to the gas-filled peritoneal cavity as pneumoperitoneum. These terms are used quite frequently when discussing laparoscopy. There are three significant physiologic considerations for laparoscopy that are important to keep in mind. The first are the cardiac and respiratory consequences of increased intra-abdominal pressure that results from pneumoperitoneum, which has direct mechanical effects on the diaphragm and lungs, inferior vena cava, and other intra-abdominal organs. The second is the carbon dioxide itself, which gets absorbed into surrounding tissues and into the circulation. Carbon dioxide is quite soluble in blood and can be eliminated through respiration, which is a major advantage of using this gas. On the other hand, it can lead to complications such as subcutaneous emphysema and has cardiovascular effects. The third consideration is patient positioning during laparoscopic surgery, which can have significant physiologic consequences. We'll dive deeper into these concepts later on. So now that we're familiar with the basics of laparoscopic surgery, let's go through a case. Today we have Mr. Billy Cullick, a 72-year-old man here for an elective laparoscopic cholecystectomy. What do we want to ask Billy on his pre-op history? Well, I would want to start with a standard pre-op assessment, which includes a general medical history, a surgical history, including what types of anesthesia he's had in the past, and a focused assessment of his heart, lungs, and airway. I would also ask about any allergies and the last time he ate or drank. Great. So let's say that Billy is a fairly healthy 72-year-old. He takes medications for high cholesterol, GERD, and depression. He has good exercise tolerance and no cardiac history. 
He has a 20-pack year smoking history, but he quit 10 years ago. He's had a knee replacement done under spinal anesthesia previously, a tonsillectomy under general anesthetic as a child, and he also tells you that he's had a colonoscopy under sedation. His heart and lungs sound normal in auscultation, and his airway exam reveals a malampati class 2 with a normal thyromental distance, normal dentition, normal mouth opening, and upper lip bite test class 1. So the things that I'm going to pay special attention to there are his history of GERD, smoking, and additional risk factors for cardiac disease such as age, high cholesterol, and male sex. I would carefully screen for undiagnosed cardiac and respiratory disease since laparoscopy can cause hemodynamic instability. It would be important to assess for signs of sepsis from his cholecystitis. He has had a general anesthetic in the past without any issues, and it sounds like his airway is reassuring and should be straightforward to manage. Okay, moving on. The next thing to consider here is the induction. For laparoscopic surgery, general anesthesia is by far the most common choice. Billy is a fairly typical patient, so I would use an induction technique that I'm familiar and comfortable with, such as fentanyl, propofol, and rocuronium. Obviously, there are many other adjuncts that could be used here, and one of the great things about working with different supervisors is the opportunity to see a variety of inductions. But for now, let's keep things simple. One specific consideration for laparoscopic surgery is that neuromuscular blockade will be needed throughout the case. Muscle relaxation is important in laparoscopic surgery to improve surgical conditions and prevent patient movement, which can contribute to major injury with laparoscopic instruments. The degree of neuromuscular blockade needed depends on the type of surgery and patient factors. This would be a great question to ask your staff next time you're in the OR. A neuromuscular blocker will also allow for easier insufflation at lower pressures, which in turn may help with ease of ventilation. Since neuromuscular blockade is a requirement for the surgery, we can use this to our advantage by administering a standard intubating dose of rocuronium at induction. This will allow for a good relaxation of the vocal cords, prevent laryngospasm or coughing, and provides an adequate level of muscle relaxation during insufflation. Next, of course, we will need to intubate the patient. We'll be using an endotracheal tube to secure the airway for a few different reasons. Theoretically, supraglottic airway devices such as an LMA can be used with positive pressure ventilation. However, there are some potential drawbacks to this. Supraglottic airways come with an increased aspiration risk. Our patient has a history of GERD already, and I can only imagine that insufflating the abdomen will exert additional pressure against the lower esophageal sphincter. Absolutely. Another reason that I would hesitate to insert an LMA is patient positioning. During laparoscopic cases, the patient's position is often changed, which could cause a supraglottic device to shift or lose its seal. And a third potential problem is with ventilation. Higher ventilatory pressures are often required to expand the patient's lungs against the pressure coming from the abdomen. And with a supraglottic device, this can lead to a lot of air entering the esophagus. I'd like to return to something you just mentioned, which is that patients are often repositioned during laparoscopic surgery. Typically, they will start out supine or head down and then be repositioned in order to optimize the laparoscopic view for their particular procedure. So for example, in an appendectomy, most of the action is taking place in the lower end of the abdominal cavity, and so a Trendelenburg position is optimal for taking pressure off the appendix by shifting other organs out of the way. For a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, the patient is actually tilted head up and rolled slightly to the left to open up the space around the gallbladder. Next, we'll discuss my favorite phase of anesthesia, which is maintenance. 
As a medical student, this is the point in the case where your preceptor might ask you something like, what are your anesthetic considerations for a laparoscopic case? And of course, after listening to this episode, you'll be ready to answer that question. Personally, I like to go through this by system. So let's start from the top with the brain. High levels of carbon dioxide cause vasodilation in the brain, increasing cerebral blood flow as well as intracranial pressure. Other effects depend on positioning. With Trendelenburg, or head down position, intracranial pressure will go up due to the effects of gravity on venous return. Our patient, Billy, will be in reverse Trendelenburg for most of his surgery, so we should keep an eye on his blood pressure and maintain it in an adequate range to prevent cerebral ischemia. Next, let's discuss cardiovascular effects. These can be quite complex and may lead to variable outcomes. Increased intra-abdominal pressure from insufflation will mechanically compress major organs and vessels, such as the liver, spleen, and inferior vena cava. The effect this has on preload is actually variable and depends on the patient's volume status and positioning. For example, reverse Trendelenburg positioning further reduces venous return due to the effects of gravity, and this can exacerbate hypotension. On the other hand, systemic vascular resistance and blood pressure often increase initially due to mechanical compression of the aorta. But wait, there is more. Pneumoperitoneum also causes a neuroendocrine response with the release of catecholamines and vasopressin through the renin-angiotensin system. Along with the mechanical effects, this will contribute to increased systemic vascular resistance and increased blood pressure. Another common phenomenon during abdominal insufflation is stimulation of the vagus nerve due to peritoneal stretch, which will lead to parasympathetic effects such as bradycardia. On the other hand, however, high levels of carbon dioxide, or hypercarbia, can increase tachycardia and contribute to increased systemic vascular resistance. Okay, that was a lot to digest. I see now why the effects can be so variable. I guess my main takeaways are that the patient's systemic vascular resistance is going to be increased, the effect on preload is variable, and that we may see some decrease in the heart rate, uh, particularly during the initial insufflation. Awesome. Let's move on to the respiratory effects next. High intra-abdominal pressures will push upward on the diaphragm in the lungs, leading to atelectasis, decreased functional residual capacity, and decreased overall lung compliance. As a result, we often see higher airway pressures on the ventilator, as it has to work a bit harder to push the same amount of air into the patient's lungs with each breath. One thing actually working in our favor here is patient positioning. Mr. Colick in a head-up position, uh, will have gravity sort of taking some of the pressure off of his lungs and making them a bit easier to expand. One way to avoid high airway pressures is to decrease the volume of each breath so that less pressure is required from the ventilator, but the trade-off there is a decrease in minute ventilation. Right, and this could be problematic. Our patient has an elevated carbon dioxide level from the insufflation, so we would actually want to be increasing his minute ventilation to compensate and blow off more carbon dioxide. So if we're trying to keep our tidal volumes on the lower side, then the only option left for increasing minute ventilation is to increase the respiratory rate. As you can imagine, in patients with conditions such as COPD or obesity, this can be quite the balancing act, and it can be extra challenging to keep them adequately ventilated. Mr. Colick has a bit of a smoking history, and he may have some undiagnosed lung disease, so I would keep a close eye on his end tidal CO2 and airway pressures throughout the case. The next system is GI, which we alluded to a bit earlier. 
Abdominal insufflation increases the risk of aspiration, as does Mr. Colick's history of GERD. We've confirmed his NPO status prior to surgery and secured his airway with a cuffed endotracheal tube to help prevent against aspiration. Now, on the topic of GI, the surgeon may ask you to place an orogastric tube to decompress the stomach prior to insufflation to minimize stomach injury and improve surgical conditions. And to mention another potential effect, high intradominal, intra-abdominal pressures can compress vasculature and reduce blood flow to organs such as the liver and kidneys, although this is not typically an issue during shorter cases. Wow. All right. We've covered a lot of ground so far. Now, the last thing we'd like to discuss today are a few potential complications that may arise during laparoscopic surgery. These are important to be aware of and monitor for both the surgery and postoperatively. So one thing to be particularly vigilant about is when the surgeon initially establishes access and insufflates the abdomen. Inserting ports and instruments can cause injury to internal organs and vasculature, which can result in bleeding and instability. We've already talked about the potential hemodynamic consequences of insufflation, so we might be expecting to see some hyper or hypotension and possibly bradycardia during this time. So it would be important to establish whether a drop in blood pressure is simply a response to pneumoperitoneum or a consequence of something like bleeding or a carbon dioxide gas embolism. Some degrees of CO2 gas embolism are actually quite common during, lapar- during laparoscopy, uh, although clinically significant emboli are a little more rare. You might suspect an embolism if there is abrupt reduction in end tidal CO2, hypotension, hypoxemia, or potentially arrhythmia. Sounds scary. So management of a CO2 embolism would be another great discussion topic to bring up next time you're in the OR. For sure. Good call. Another potential complication here that we might see during insufflation is subcutaneous emphysema, which occurs when the gas tracks into into the subcutaneous tissues. If you see a sudden increase in end tidal CO2, be sure to palpate the patient's chest and shoulders for a crunchy, rice crispy feeling. Subcutaneous emphysema can also develop more gradually during longer procedures due to absorption of carbon dioxide into the tissues. So let's return to our patient, Billy. Let's say, for example, that partway through the case, we notice inspiratory pressures on the ventilator suddenly increase, and a moment later, his oxygen saturation starts to drop. What's our differential diagnosis for this? Hmm, That's a tough one. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is probably a pneumothorax. A sudden increase in ventilatory pressures means that the resistance in the lungs has gone up, and a pneumothorax could definitely cause this. There are some other possibilities as well. We know that the intra-abdominal pressures during laparoscopic surgery exert a lot of upward force on the diaphragm, so we might see similar effects after insufflation simply from reduced lung compliance. There's one other likely culprit, which is an endobronchial intubation, meaning that the endotracheal tube has gone down the right main stem bronchus. As the abdomen is filled with gas, the diaphragm and lungs get shifted upward towards the patient head, patient's head, and the tip of the endotracheal tube might actually end up in that main stem bronchi. This is obviously more benign than a pneumothorax, and it can just be resolved by pulling back the tube a centimeter or two. Now, postoperatively, there are a few things that we can consider for Mr. Colic. The first is postoperative nausea and vomiting. Although he doesn't have any of the typical risk factors, post-op nausea and vomiting are very common after laparoscopic surgery, so we should make sure that he gets prophylaxis for this. A good agent here might be on Danzatron. 
Another consideration is the atelectasis that occurs from upward pressure on the lungs, and it would be a good idea for Mr. Colic to do some deep breathing exercises postoperatively. Lastly, shoulder pain is a common phenomenon after laparoscopic surgery and is likely referred pain from irritation of the phrenic nerve. This generally responds well to NSAIDs or other analgesics, and we can reassure the patient that this pain is quite normal. Well, I think that concludes our discussion for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into this week's episode of the Airwave Podcast and for the last episode of Series 3. This episode was written by Gwen Lofsted and edited by Nick Timmerman. We hope that you all feel a little more comfortable with anesthesia for laparoscopic surgery after listening to today's episode. In case you fell asleep, here's a quick refresher for today's episode. So number one, neuromuscular blockade is required to improve surgical conditions and prevent movement. Number two, endotracheal intubation is preferred over supraglottic airways due to high aspiration risk and airway, high airway pressures. Number three, Pneumoperitoneum has two major physiologic effects. The first is an increase in intraabdominal pressure, which leads to compression of structures, increased SVR, variable effect on preload, increased airway pressures, and decreased functional residual capacity. The second effect is absorption of carbon dioxide, which can lead to acidosis, vasodilation, and increased cerebral blood flow. Number four, patient positioning has significant effects. In Trenellenberg position, we see increased ICP, a risk of endobronchial intubation, and further decreased functional residual capacity and lung compliance, leading to higher airway pressures. In head-up position, we may see decreased cerebral perfusion and decreased venous return. Number five, complications of insufflating the abdomen include injury to internal structures causing bleeding, bradycardia from vagal stimulation, hemodynamic instability from insufflation, gas embolism, subcutaneous emphysema, or endobronchial intubation. And six, postoperatively, there is increased risk of shoulder pain, postoperative nausea and vomiting, and atelectasis. Thanks for that awesome summary, Gwen. For our viewers, we'll be posting show notes for this episode on our webpage, and please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Airwave Podcast for details about our upcoming fourth series. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.